Good morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. While you're turning, <clears throat> and I don't want to alarm you, but I do want to put my finger on something, and I thought I'd just use myself as an example. I am my own worst enemy. And if I'm completely honest, even after all these years and all this education and all this growth, spiritual growth, I mean, God has, I'm a walking miracle. God has done a miraculous work in my attitude in my life, but I'm still my own worst enemy and my number one villain is selfishness. In fact, everything seems to go back to that one common denominator, selfishness. I want, I mean in Christ, I am inspired by Jesus. Sometimes it just so thrills my soul to get a clear picture of our Lord and Savior, his attitude, his outlook, his love for others, because that redounds not only to him, but to you and me. It, it reminds us, it reminds us how much we're loved. As much as we may mess things up, we can't mess up his love for us. So I'm inspired by the Lord. And I want to be noble, even heroic. But her <laughs> heroes are not selfish. Heroism is not selfish. Just uh, some days ago, and Maybe give me a wink or a nod if you happen to see this. It was, a, it was all over the media. I think I saw it repeated on each of the network shows. You know me. I record all the network news shows uh, in the evening, on the evening news. It ran on all three, and it showed the story of a, of a young man. I, I mean, this guy was a strapping, handsome fit you know, really virile dude. And uh, he was a soldier, maybe even a soldier of soldiers, but as it so happened, he was off duty. And uh, he was, you know, it was on his free time, his day, and he happened upon a burning car with people in it. He stopped his car. Somebody had their smartphone on video, and there you see him dashing to the car, flames leaping, people kind of at a distance, and he pulls two people to safety. I mean, he literally drags them with his strength away, goes back and gets a second person. That morning, he just happened to put on a Captain America shirt. And of course, the news was all over that, and the backstory on this guy, you know, I mean, Fitness, 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 with a capital F. I realize there's a public component to heroism. 
I mean, somebody had their, they videoed it. The news got out, and the newsmakers came in and got the story and found out what kind of a guy he was. And in a way, because of his day-to-day life, he was in the right spot at the right time. But seen or unseen, this man's will, his will to deny himself for the sake of others was heroic. You know, public heroism, it measures, you know, it's measured in the action that is witnessed and observed by others. But behind the action lies a nobility of cause. And it's the nobility of cause to lay down your life, to risk your life, to put your life on the, on the line to love and save someone else. I mean, even if you wouldn't consciously, consciously describe what you're doing as love or motivated by love, you may not even be thinking straight, but you just throw caution to the wind and you risk your life to save someone else's. That's what we call heroism. In all of its forms, that's, that's the core that prompts heroic actions. Jesus said, there's no greater love. Some call it heroism. Jesus called it love. And only one villain stands in the way. Selfishness. Selfishness. And what I'm trying to suggest to you, what I want to plant in your heart is a realization that there is unseen heroism that is never lauded, never praised, songs are never written, never is videoed, And yet the same fundamental battle and the same fundamental willingness to risk your life to help, to save, to serve someone else can take place not just when the cameras are rolling but each and every day of our lives. And in the most out-of-the-way garden variety, what we might call normal circumstances. But we have this problem, selfishness. And selfishness is very stubborn. The Bible calls it pride. Pride. I could make a case that it is the deadliest sin or the sin of sins because it is the root of every variety and shade of what the Bible would call, or you would call, or any living, breathing person would call sin. Because stubborn as it is, it's very stealthy, it's stubborn, it's even creepy. Even John the Baptist 
when he recognized who Jesus was, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Selfishness is an issue. It's fundamental. I'm not trying to put you on the spot or characterize you as selfish people. I'm just trying to say that's the villain. And it's that villainy which thwarts the heroism that Jesus is leading us to in the very little ways of life in which we are willing, willing, of a will in following Jesus, willing to risk our lives, you know? I mean, it, it may not seem like the stage is set, but God knows. We know we're risking something, we're giving something up, we're setting something aside to follow him, to let him take us to places that we wouldn't be willing to go on our own. And we're not helped in this. We're our own worst enemies. And it's this stubborn selfishness that is the villain. And it is, it is me and it is you. We're not helped by living in a selfish world. I mean, it makes it harder to spot selfishness or even identify it. There's a lot of selfishness that never goes labeled in this world of celebrity celebration. It's, so to speak, camouflaged by the acceptance and the applause of so much that at root is self-promotion and elevation. So we don't even recognize selfishness if we're trying to look at it through the lens of the world or if we're expecting the stories out there provided by the world to show us what selfishness is. And we're not helped in this by living in a world under the influence of Satan. Our arch enemy opposes God. Why? Scripture teaches us because he didn't want to be second to God. Selfishness. And you know, it's his number one stratagem when it talks about the wiles and schemes of the devil. It's an insidious thing, this selfishness. And yet it seems so normal. It's just, I did it my way. You know, it's just... Hey, standing up for my rights. And that is the number one power of selfishness to get the best of us. I've gotten pretty good at spotting my selfishness. Whenever I have a regret, I can trace an, a, a regret to selfishness. You know, that's an after the fact kind of thing. And I'm getting better at stopping dead in my tracks and saying, I know what's up, it's me or you, Lord, it's me or you, and, and I'm gonna choose you. But I'll tell you what still fouls me up and gets me into trouble, and it's the number one issue that we face, and that's what I call righteous selfishness. It is pride's secret weapon, justification. Not justification by grace, no. I'm talking about justification by right, by law. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I can spot selfishness in so many other forms and shades, but I'll tell you, 
when my rights are at stake or when I'm in the right, when the law is on my side, when I've been playing by the rules and I'm wrong, those are the times that I feel like, hey, and that's when my selfishness is at its greatest strength. That's also when God's love is at its weakest point in its power in my life. And it's out of those circumstances that most often my regrets come. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, because that's the fundamental issue that Paul is addressing here in this chapter is selfishness. It's not, are you right? Oh, you are right. It's, it's not that you have, that your knowledge is, no, your knowledge is right. But in the process, your right is wrong. Not by the law, not by the merits of freedom, or just, justice, it's wrong in the light of Christ's love. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, have a little humility. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The issue is eating meat 
that was sacrificed to a god. Now, they didn't buy raw meat. They brought animals. The occasions varied. Sometimes they were family gatherings, a special birthday for that first child who's just turned one. We actually have records of that that were held in the temple precincts asking for the deity's blessing. And they bring an animal and they slaughter it. And they offer meat to the deity that they're serving and asking to bless the birth, the child, the child's life. But there's always more meat than is offered. And the rest they use as the centerpiece of a celebration. And these kinds of events reached out into all kinds of public affairs because in Corinth, just like in the Mediterranean, those who believe in the Bible, Jews and now Christians in Jesus Christ, they believe in one God. But everybody else believes in many gods, different echelons or levels of gods. And so having sacrifices and then feasting in connection with the precincts of the temple, it could be a very public affair. And most likely here we have people who know that these deities don't really exist and their representations in the, in the temple precincts, in the places where they meet, they're, they're posted. They're all over the city, but especially in the temple and the food is set before them. It's a representation, usually in human form, of this deity and their powers to control the world. And these people say, we know they don't exist. We know there's one true God. That's what Paul's pointing out. They're right. <laughs> they've, they've got the truth on their side. But in this case, some others who are not as strong in this, this knowledge have been deeply troubled because they, they don't have that conviction and that confidence I think that's made clear by the way Paul words what is our foundational truth. God alone and Jesus Christ for whom and through whom we exist. Yeah, you may, you may say there are lots of other gods, but even so, one mediator, Jesus Christ, he alone. And yet some struggle and Paul says they've been wounded to the point that they are at risk or they have been so weakened in their faith that, that now they believe Jesus is maybe just one God of many gods. And therefore, the truths that come from Jesus and what he has done for us is just a competitive belief. And instead of leaving the gods which they had abandoned, they're returning to them. You know, 
I want to emphasize what's, in, this is an important piece because if we're just talking about the general world, it's, it's helpful to know that they don't know what we know and to impose our beliefs on them and, and then be upset that they don't in lockstep and with a salute appreciate what we appreciate. That's important to know. But here is a more particular case in which Paul says, you know some people have been wounded. Here's the way we have to manage this. Jesus himself ate, sat at table with tax gatherers, which were thought of as, as hated well, they were. They were, they were hated turncoats who served Rome and not their own people. I mean, how would you feel if, if someone invited you appreciating our, our freedoms and our justices here in this country if somebody was a known uh, anti-patriot to sit down with that person. Jesus did that. And with, with prostitutes too. In other words, there was no one beyond the pale of his mission to save others. And it was worth risking his own reputation. There may be occasions only you will know your motives. And others may misjudge that. But here we have a specific case where these people have made known their issue and they're within the church. They're both Christians. And so there's that tendency, well, what, do I stoop to the least common denominator? I remember when I became an intern, I was required to wear a tie. A tie? Well, you're really blowing my... My style. I mean, I came out of the hippie thing and I didn't want to wear a tie. And I said, well, why should I, you know, am I not in some ways endorsing a, a false belief, a false opinion by just catering to them? I wanted to turn this thing around and make it about me. Every day we're going to be faced with similar situations. I'm not going to tell you. Paul doesn't tell them. He's not an umpire calling balls or strikes. I mean, it's one or the other, right? Paul doesn't do that. He's more of a coach, and he's trying to teach them. In fact, we can learn a lot about how we need to conduct ourselves and manage ourselves in a world that is sometimes hard to figure out and very difficult to navigate as a Christian if we appreciate what Paul does here because he goes right to the core of things. And what he does, he doesn't, as I said, add rules. What he does is call us to heroic love, the heroic love of God that needs no law to risk life itself for another. And I want us to see three themes that he shows us. Knowledge counts. You know, knowledge is important, but not more than love. That we see, that's the gist of the opening three verses. Knowing what's right includes what others think is wrong. 
And that he really spells out in verses four through eight. And there's, there's the very principle of, of Jesus' own teaching here that, you know, it's to the least of these. To the least of these. I don't know where you would find yourself on the scale of things and whether you might think you merit God's love. But I think the point of Jesus' teaching is that every one of us, in a, in a real sense, is categorized as to the least of these. Because on the scale of what the world weighs as important, or worth, or merit, most of whom God appeals to he wants to reach everyone, but it's those people that the world have rejected that the message of God's love comes with such greater power. And the third thing that he emphasizes, a third theme, and this is kind of a moving development. He says, sure, knowledge is important. I mean, Paul wouldn't go to the trouble of writing this letter if he didn't think knowledge informs us and equips us and helps us. But I want you to notice the pastoral care that he shows in this letter. He doesn't bully them. He's very sensitive and he's trying to draw them along and I'll explain a little bit more about that. But he knows, he says knowing what's right includes what others think is wrong, and then he comes to the biggest and most important theme and point, the foundation of what he wants us to do, is he wants us to know that we can see rights and wrongs most clearly in the light of Christ's love. In verses one through three, he says, yes, knowledge is important, but you know, if you think you know something, you really already don't know like you ought. And it's true, knowledge can solve problems, but it also can divide people. That's why Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he starts off in verse one, Introducing the topic, now concerning the question of eating meat that has been offered to idols, and then he breaks off and he says, let me just clarify what the real issue is. And it is the issue between knowledge and love. How often does love get lost in the details of knowledge? And you know, I've devoted my whole adult life to learning more about the Bible. And it's that knowledge can just crowd out sometimes. I mean, it, it just can cause you to lose sight of the most important things. And over the years, even in the church, I have seen doctrines, you know what I mean? Teachings of the Bible. There, is not every teaching important? Oh, sure. But I've seen love demoted, demoted to almost unrecognizable position in the service of a pet doctrine or pet belief. 
And it's like all of a sudden, the very heart of the New Testament, the heart of God, the heart of what he did in Jesus Christ, the heart of what we call the gospel is left behind. And yet that's the very thing that reached us, that touched us, that taught us that we too can know God and know his love. Paul gives us a zinger in verse three. I'm gonna translate it as, about as literally as I can, because every translation is a little subtle, but trust me, this is exactly what it says. But it won't say all that it says because English can't say all that's there. Does that make sense? But if someone loves God, this one has been loved by God. The reason I brought it out that way is because the verbs are very important. And in this case, they give us some, some insight into something that isn't super clear. And that is, is that first, he says, if someone loves God, well, the word love is the word agape. That tells you something about their relationship right there. Because in all other literature, the word agape, that is prior to Jesus Christ, the New Testament and the gospel, I've, I've been reading for years and the most important words are eros and philia. That is, that love that just is almost lustful attraction, that spark, that the kind of love that makes people fall in love and fall out of love when it's gone. And then also family love, uh, affectionate love, familial love, philia. Those are the words that occur. Hardly ever run across agape in, in other literature outside of the New Testament. So the very fact that he uses the word love here to describe the person's love of God is a tip. And then the other thing is that when he gets to the knowledge known by God well, that's a different tense, and it teaches us that God's knowledge preceded the person's love. Now, I, that's all I want you to appreciate, because what Paul is emphasizing is, you know what? If you want to talk knowledge, God knows more. And God knew you before you ever loved him. And you love him because he first loved you. That's what Paul's driving at. And that's the love that captures our heart. Knowledge doesn't stand in the way of God's love. In fact, that's why in various places we run across this theme. While we were yet sinners, while we were still in the wrong, Christ died for us. Christ ran to the burning car and pulled us from it not just at the risk, but at the cost of his own life. And we didn't deserve it, but he did it. Another thing that we see here is that we've got to include the feelings. We've got to appreciate 
that there are people involved that God loves. There are brothers and sisters involved, even within the church. We got to have this pastoral heart that nobody's excluded, even when they're wrong. We've got to be sensitive. That's what he's saying the way I read it. And he, he starts off in verse 4 all the way through 8. He lays out all these foundational truths. We, these, this we know, this we know, this we know. But then right smack dab in the middle, he says, yet some don't know. In verse 7, not everyone knows this. This refers to what he's just said, to both the nothingness of idols and the everythingness of God in Christ, our mediator. And he says, not everyone knows this, but knowing what's right will include them, even when it might pinch your own rights, freedoms, privileges, and sense of what's right and wrong. God's love does concern people. We know that best because we're the first recipient that we experience and can appreciate this. But it, I think it's why we do resonate with this, which has been traced to Teddy Roosevelt. He just sums it up well. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Isn't that the same thing with God? You love him, why? Because you know how much he cares. You know how much he cares. And then he comes to verses nine through 13, that third theme, we can see rights and wrongs most clearly in the light of Christ's love. Paul talks about the conscience, verse seven and verse 10. He thinks of the conscience as sort of an internal compass telling each person what is right and wrong. But the conscience, like a compass, is a sensitive instrument and it can easily malfunction. I know this, I have used compasses. I thought I had a good compass. It had a bubble of air in it and it malfunctioned. And if I followed its direction, it would have led me way, way off course and perhaps into peril. Well, with that same idea, Sometimes our conscience can't tell the difference between social custom and what's really an issue of right and wrong. You know, social, social custom, the way things are done, like in our society, or in a club, or at a school, or in a family even. Sometimes we can confuse social custom with actual issues of right and wrong. But the conscience can be reset and it can be re-educated. But Paul knows from years of pastoral experience and he shows it right here in chapter eight and in chapter nine and 10, which all concerns meet that has been offered to idols. I hope you'll be reading eight through 10 over and over. In chapter nine, you won't see, you won't think that it really is related, but Paul's talking 
in it as an example himself of, of how he's been willing to set aside his own rights and freedoms. I think you'll really enjoy it and it'll be rich for your soul. But the conscience, you gotta know, can be reset, but Paul, knowing from his long pastoral experience, he knows that conscience takes time to re-educate and reset. It takes patience. You know, it's not enough to tell people to give up the deep inner ideas that they've had at the moment and adopt some other one instead. I mean, I, I do that. <laughs> you do that. But you need to know, too, that if they go along with what you tell them they need to do or what you tell them they need to know, you got to keep in mind that they may go along, but they'll be deeply troubled. And their conscience, so long, you know, fed on old ideas or wrong ideas, will continue to tell them over and over that they're in the wrong place. It takes time. We need that kind of patience. That's the kind of thing that love provides, and Paul exemplifies it. But verse 11 is key. Basically, he's saying, and that's the gotcha for anyone who loves Jesus Christ and appreciates that the same attitude that Paul's advocating is the very attitude of God that saved me and saved you. And now Paul appeals to it and he says, do you want to be on the wrong side of the very love that saved your life? Because what he is saying there is that you may be causing the person to sin or even to turn away from Jesus Christ, the person for whom Jesus died. And nobody knows that better than the strong of conscience who really know and who love and know the Lord. I imagine it's hard to see the heroism in not eating meat, but Paul points us to it. He ties dying to yourself with the saving death of Jesus Christ. And when we follow him day to day, Jesus will lead us into occasions and situations. They may not be burning cars, but the same love the same noble cause that produces heroism that same love is the love we will be called to exhibit in the power of Jesus Christ in our homes or with stubborn people or people who cut us off on the road. And what I want us to appreciate is you may never end up in the news. You may not be wearing your Captain America shirt. But each and every day when you make those little important decisions, not me, it's not about me. And in Christ, he can use my selfless devotion to serving him and living and acting in his love to do things beyond my own imagination. Some that add up and in time are even seen as heroic. You are the hero, mom or dad, to your children. You are the hero or can be the hero at the office or as an example of Christian patience and love. 
We're challenged in so many areas of life. Politics, sports, social issues. And we can't always know perhaps what's right. Or if we do, just don't leave love behind. Let that be the thing that prompts you to the heroic life of Jesus Christ in you to show God's love to others. It's really a matter of risking your life to save another. Will you stand with me? Who is your hero? That's been on my mind this week. I just want to leave you with this thought. We don't have many heroes in our society. I know uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave up his life, who was a true hero, who was hung by the Nazis for his convictions and faith to stand up for Christ. But he read about heroes. Sometimes we need to be reminded, and you're not going to find them in the media I just want you to think of Jesus as your hero. He's Lord and Savior, but is he your hero? That will compel you in those little garden variety moments when selfishness says, make it all about you. But this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm gonna close in prayer, but I'll be down here along with pastoral staff, elders, their wives, others, if you would like to pray if you would like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Know this love, this heroic love that God has put into our hearts and that should dominate our life and our character. Come, tell us about it. Let's pray together. Maybe someone else is on your heart because of such love and you are praying or interceding for them. Come. And let's pray together. Maybe this morning God has put his finger on something in your life. I just called it my enemy, selfishness. But maybe there's a specific situation or variety in which you want to dedicate that to the Lord and deal with it differently and heroically. You come as the Lord has spoken to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you for such inspiration. We are inspired by you and your glorious love. There's nothing like it. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.